I'm doing this intro on my phone, so I don't know if the audio quality is going to be very good. But the rest of this episode is just the audio from a YouTube video that I just uploaded, or really that I'm uploading right now. But by the time you hear this, it should be completely uploaded. It's about the allegations against Danny Masterson and also a bit about how much I just don't trust Ashton Kutcher. I had been working on the episode for a little bit. It ended up a bit longer than I expected, as per usual with my with my content creation process. It just got longer and bigger and more unruly. But here it is. It's two hours long, and uh, there are a couple parts in the video that I think you would benefit from seeing the visuals on screen. Like there's a part with um with a thing about Ashton Kutcher in a murder case where I was gesturing to some things on the screen, but I, I think you'll be able to keep up without those visual aids. If you don't want to actually watch the video and you just want to listen to this, that should be fine. Um, I do want to make a correction, though, uh, because I realized this after I started exporting and then uploading the video. Um, I mentioned in it that the retrial for Danny is taking place next month in March, um, which actually, when I'm recording this, is tomorrow. Tomorrow is March. I guess it's actually been postponed, though, to sometime in April. So just a little correction there. Otherwise, I think this is all mostly accurate. I hope. I did my best. But it's a, a lot of information. But uh, here you go. So a few weeks ago, I uploaded an episode of my podcast talking about that 90s show, the new Netflix spinoff reboot of that 70s show. I did watch all of it. It was pretty bad, just as far as, like, the quality of a TV show goes. Just not very good. But most of my complaints were about the kind of eerie quality that I thought the series had, given that its primary and really only appeal is that it relies a lot on nostalgia. Most episodes have some sort of cameo from old cast members, or they make a lot of callbacks to jokes from the original series. But despite all of that, the reason that I watched, like, every episode, even though I hated it the whole time, is because I wanted to see if they would make any sort of reference to the character Hyde from the original series, because even though every other cast member who's, like, still alive makes a cameo on the show, Danny Masterson does not, and for good reason, because if you were not aware, Danny Masterson has been credibly accused of rape by at least five women. So I wanted to see how the producers were going to handle that, since it is such a big elephant in the room when it comes to that 70s show and now that 90s show. The way that they chose to handle it, though, was by not addressing it whatsoever. And okay, sure, I didn't expect them to, like, refer to Hyde's character as if he had done the same things as Danny. Like, I didn't expect them to make a direct reference to the crimes of Danny Masterson. But I thought that they would at least, like, kill him off or something. I mean, mention where his character's at, hopefully in a kind of disparaging way, you know? send the message that you are against what Danny did? I mean, remember when Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen didn't want to be in Fuller House 
So the entire Fuller House cast made that really shady remark toward them, and they all looked at the camera, and it was kind of, like, a little rude. Well, Michelle sends her love, but she's busy in New York running her fashion empire. <laughs> and yet, the writers for that 90s show are completely unwilling to address what Danny Masterson did at all. Now, I sympathize with the writers to a degree because... While I think that the omission of even mentioning Hyde is kind of strange, I also don't know what exactly they could have done that would have been sufficient in addressing what Danny Masterson is accused of. What was kind of extra strange to me was the fact that the cast for that 90s show is doing promo for it including the people who only have little cameos. Like, they've all done interviews talking about what it was like to be back on the set and stuff like that. And yet, questions about Danny Masterson have just not come up in any, any interview whatsoever. So it's a little weird to me that none of these people feel the need to publicly distance themselves from a man accused of being a serial rapist. I mean, these things that Danny is accused of doing are some of the easiest things to come out against. So when I made that podcast episode, the only person on the original cast who had said anything about the allegations against Danny at all was Topher Grace, and he really didn't say much. Everyone else was completely silent until a little bit after I uploaded my episode when Ashton Kutcher decided to weigh in. This is the first time that Ashton has said anything about the allegations against Danny, even though they were actually working together on the Netflix show The Ranch when the allegations were first coming out. So Ashton has been pretty close to this situation for a while, but it took until a couple weeks ago for him to actually say anything about it, which he did in an interview that he did with Esquire. Now, first off, the way that this topic is introduced in the Esquire interview is incredibly odd because it literally starts with Ashton, like, praising Danny to a degree and talking about what a good influence Danny was in his life. It says, as Kutcher recalls, he's like, one fucking rule. Don't do anything fucking stupid and fuck this up because if you fuck it up, you fuck it up for everybody. He kept the cast in line, off drugs and away from bad decisions. Ah, uh, yeah, I would really, really have rather him just do drugs. Then it says, Masterson's legal battle is hard for Kutcher to watch. Even after Kutcher left the show, Masterson remained a mentor of his. And when the rape accusations were first made public in 2017, Masterson was co-starring with Kutcher in The Ranch, a Netflix sitcom that ran from 2016 to 2020. Netflix soon wrote Masterson's character off and fired him. I don't know that I agree with the use of the word soon. They kind of took a minute, but whatever, I'll let that one slide for now. He and Kutcher remain in touch. Kutcher speaks to Masterson's brother often. He says he thinks about Masterson's child and how the internet lives forever. Someday his kid is going to read about this, says Kutcher. Now, I've talked about this kind of cop-out reasoning when discussing the allegations against allegedly violent men before. Do you have any feelings about his guilt or innocence now? You know, I've never expressed how I felt about that because I just... Respect his children. I don't really agree with the idea that children are benefited from 
the entire world pretending that their parent is not a violent, abusive person? Especially when thinking about Danny's child. He only has one, and it's a girl. He has a daughter. I think the fact that her father is a violent misogynist and her mother doesn't really care is going to be more relevant in her life and in her upbringing than just the fact that these allegations against him are public. But whatever. The Esquire interview goes on to say, At the same time, Kutcher is an advocate for those who've been or are being abused. I wholesale feel for anybody who feels like they were violated in any way. What Kutcher wants, he says, is for Masterson to be found innocent of the charges brought against him, which is not, crucially, the same as Kutcher wanting his friend to get off the hook. He wants this man who was an example of how to handle yourself at a crucial time in his own life to actually be that example. To be innocent. Ultimately, I can't know, says Kutcher, of what the answer is or should be in this moment. I'm not the judge, I'm not the jury, I'm not the DA, I'm not the victim, and I'm not the accused. And so in that case, I don't have a space to comment. He pauses. I just don't know. That is bullshit, because you don't have to be the judge, jury, DA, victim, or the accused to look at all the evidence against Danny Masterson and say, yeah, he's a rapist. It's just all there. I mean, for starters, this really isn't like a he said, she said kind of situation. It is at the very, very least a he said, she said, she said, she said, she said, she said situation. But possibly it is a he said, she 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 said kind of situation. So... Even just statistically, when you think about the fact that false rape allegations are extremely rare, and they generally follow some pretty particular patterns that these allegations just do not follow, there really isn't any reason to think that Danny is innocent. He's not. Now, on one hand, I'm not really surprised that Ashton has taken this stance. He has been associating with Danny since the allegations came out to the point that there are photos of the two of them hanging out at a wedding together in 2018, where I guess they were also seated at the same table. And because these allegations have been so public for so long, I just would think that if you knew and you cared that Danny was a rapist, you would have said something publicly sooner. The allegations against Danny are damning to the point that I can't really believe that Ashton doesn't know that his friend is a rapist. I think he does. And I'm not super shocked about that. I am, however, a little bit surprised by Ashton's comfort in saying this stuff so publicly. Because Ashton Kutcher, for all of his flaws, is very, very good at PR. He's one of those celebrities that most people just kind of like because he's really charming in interviews and he's really good at making himself seem like a good person who cares about other people, even if the way he goes about that sometimes is pretty bullshit, which we'll get to. So the fact that he feels like he can say this stuff in an interview and he's not gonna get a whole bunch of shit for it, which he hasn't, I mean, he's right. I've barely seen anyone talking about this Esquire interview. I've seen more people in the last few weeks making jokes about his lack of chemistry with Reese Witherspoon in the promotion for whatever fucking movie they're making together than I've seen people calling him out for supporting his friend or at least hoping his friend is found innocent for a crime he absolutely did commit. Which leads me to the necessary conclusion that 
most people don't really know that much about the Danny Masterson case. I feel pretty certain that even the people who are aware that these allegations against Danny exist aren't totally aware of the details of the allegations or the evidence supporting them. Otherwise, I can't imagine why so many people associated with Danny haven't come out and just said that they don't like him anymore. Because if you even have like a pretty basic grasp on what's being alleged here, you probably think that Danny is guilty and you think that what he's guilty of is like some of the most monstrous shit that a person can do. And it makes sense that not a lot of people understand the depth of these allegations because, number one, I don't think that the allegations against Danny have gotten a whole lot of media coverage. Obviously, there are outlets covering the trial that he was pretty recently involved in and will be involved in again because it was deemed a mistrial back in like October or November of last year and it is going to be retried next month in March. There are outlets covering these court cases. But for sure, there's not as much interest in these allegations as with other big, high-profile celebrity court cases. I mean, Danny Masterson is, like, at best a B-list celebrity. I don't think that many people really pay him much mind. And it's not like these trials are televised or anything, so no one's making, like, TikToks about them the way that they did with the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial, which for the most part is a good thing. Those TikToks were, um, vile. But at the same time, there was an awareness of that case that much of the public had that I don't think they have to this case against Danny, even though there's a lot in this case that is pretty significant beyond just Danny Masterson and his standing as an actor in public figure. I mean, the entire Church of Scientology is pretty well enmeshed in this case, and what happens with the criminal trial and then the additional civil lawsuit that will follow the criminal trial about these allegations, how those cases play out could have pretty wide-reaching effects in terms of how it affects the Church of Scientology as a whole, which has a very big hold on, like, the entire film entertainment industry because of how much the Church of Scientology has involved itself in celebrity culture. So the cultural impact of these trials is potentially pretty massive, and yet, unless you've been following this case for a while, just jumping into it can get pretty confusing when trying to even figure out what it is specifically that Danny has been accused of. There are different explainer pieces out there giving a pretty brief overview of these cases, but I don't find those pieces to ever be that comprehensive or that helpful for anyone who actually wants to like dive deep into this subject and understand how damning these allegations are. But if you try to keep up with the developments by just looking into the day-to-day -day updates on the trials and the, the reports from the previous trial that already took place and everything that came before that and the allegations in the civil lawsuit, like it's a lot of information that can get pretty confusing, especially because different outlets are reporting on the allegations differently. So 
Tony Ortega at the underground bunker was one of the first journalists to really cover this story, and in his reporting on the matter, he would refer to the accusers as, like, victim A, victim B, C, etc. Then when other outlets started to get in on this, they started referring to the alleged victims as, like, Jane Doe 1, Jane Doe 2, etc. That is how they are referred to in the trial. But then, after the initial allegations were made public, some of the women accusing Danny of rape have come forward and publicly identified themselves, so other outlets will refer to them by their names if they're not still anonymous. And on top of that, some of those same outlets will not even use their full names but refer to them by different initials. So actually trying to parse like, who is Jane Doe 1, who is Jane Doe 2, what are these different people accusing Danny of specifically, what stories go with what victim? That can all get kind of confusing and weird because there is a real lack of consistency across these different outlets. So what I'm hoping the rest of this video can be is a resource for the allegations against Danny Masterson that is simultaneously as simple and as comprehensive as I think would be useful. I've taken the allegations and put them into more or less chronological order as far as when these different events allegedly took place. And for consistency, I'm not going to use anybody's names, I'm not going to use any initials, I'm not going to do anything except for refer to these women as Jane Doe 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. I'm still going to keep these names consistent with how they appear in the trial, which means that even though we're going in chronological order and this is the first allegation or the first assault that allegedly took place, the first person we're going to discuss is Jane Doe 4. Because even though she is the earliest victim that we are currently aware of, she was the fourth woman to come forward to the LAPD. Now, I mentioned earlier that there is both a criminal trial and a civil lawsuit happening in regards to the allegations against Danny right now. In the criminal trial, Danny is being charged with the rape of three women. However, five women have come forward to the LAPD alleging rape. The reason that Danny is not being charged for two of them is that in the case of Jane Doe 5, the DA didn't think that they had sufficient evidence to corroborate her claims. And in the instance of Jane Doe 4, her alleged assault just took place too long ago that it didn't fall within the statute of limitations, but Jane Doe 4 did testify in the criminal trial as a witness to prove a pattern of behavior. In addition to that, unlike Jane Doe's 1 through 3, Jane Doe 4 is not a Scientologist, which is important because the defense's case rests on the idea that the three women that Danny is being charged with assaulting are alleging assault because they are all former members of Scientology and they apparently want to get revenge on the church for some reason. They have some sort of vendetta against Scientology, and that's why they're accusing Danny of raping them as a way to bring down the entire religion. So the fact that Jane Doe 4 is also alleging something happened to her that is very, very similar to what Jane Doe's 1 through 3 are alleging, and yet Jane Doe 4 has no association with Scientology whatsoever, is evidence that these women are not just trying to get one over on Scientology, they were actually assaulted. 
The alleged assault of Jane Doe 4 took place in 1996 when she and Danny were working on a movie together. One of the things that she alleges is that Danny used to stare at her in a really kind of hard, intense way, and that is something that the other women in this case have also alleged, that Danny had this way of just, like, looking at you with what Jane Doe 4 describes as, like, a harshness that left her feeling intimidated and confused. One night, Danny pressured Jane Doe 4 to come to an after-party at his house with some other actors. While she was there, she recalls drinking and getting lightly drunk, and then her and another actor decided to sleep at Danny's house. But in the middle of the night, Danny came into the spare room that her and the other actor were staying in and dragged Jane Doe 4 out, saying that the other actor was going to take advantage of her in some way, and around this time she said that she started to go in and out of consciousness, not in a way that really made sense with her just being really sleepy, or in a way that made sense with the amount of alcohol that she had consumed. This will also become a pattern. I am gonna warn you that I'm gonna go into detail about not just the fact that these women were allegedly assaulted, but also the details of how they were allegedly assaulted, because it does matter when establishing Danny's patterns as an alleged serial rapist. So Jane Doe 4 said, when I became conscious again, he was having sex with me. I woke up on my back in a bed and he was on top of me. He was penetrating me vaginally with his penis. She then went on to describe the act as him pounding her, and that word is going to come up a few more times. She said she woke up the next day to Danny looking at her almost sweetly as if they had been on some sort of romantic date or something, and her clothes were thrown all over the room. She said, my vagina was sore and so was my anus. The insides of my thighs were tender and bruised. I felt my whole body was in pain, like an incredible hangover, but extreme. Now, as is not uncommon with crimes like this, Jane Doe 4 said that she didn't really want to contextualize what happened to her as a rape or as an assault. She tried to just kind of write it off in her brain as, like, a bad night, and thus she didn't stop associating with Danny immediately. And about a month after that initial incident, she alleges that Danny came over to her house and raped her again. This time, he came over with a flask that he encouraged her to drink out of. She can't recall if he ever drank anything from the flask. And within 15 to 20 minutes, she started to feel extremely intoxicated. She said, We went from talking, and it moved to him taking off my pants and him starting to have sex with me. I was telling him I didn't want to have sex, and he was laughing and continuing on. I was telling him to stop, and I also told him that he didn't have a condom on, and he said, Diseases are in the mind. She said she went completely unconscious and didn't remember anything after that until the next morning when Danny woke her up and asked her to drive him to a baseball game. She told jurors that when she woke up, she was feeling shaky and hungover, and yet again, her vagina and anus hurt, and she was feeling pretty out of it. So those alleged incidents occurred in 1996. The same year, Danny began dating Jane Doe 3, whom he would remain in a relationship with until about 2002. Now, Jane Doe 3 has alleged quite a few things about her relationship with Danny, such as he brought her into the Church of Scientology when she was about 19, he would regularly insult her appearance while they were dating, at one point he took a photo of her nude and refused to delete it, she later told detectives that it was common for Danny to spit on her, and usually he would spit somewhere on her face, 
He would also allegedly manipulate her with silent treatment, sleeping in separate rooms, and would sometimes make her get on her hands and knees to apologize to him. She also alleges that Danny would use penetrative sex as a punishment for her. She said over the course of their relationship that Danny never asked for sex, but rather demanded it. She said that once Danny dragged her naked across their bedroom floor while berating her appearance, he then threw her, still naked, into the hall and locked the bedroom door. What's interesting about that allegation is that when it was brought up in the recent criminal trial, Danny's defense attorneys decided to defend that by saying that Jane Doe 3 had untruthfully taunted Danny in the early years of their relationship with the claim that she had slept with his brother. That remark upon Jane Doe 3's return from a trip to Paris is part of a sequence of events that led to Danny dragging her along the floor of their Hollywood Hills home. I'm not really sure how that makes what Danny did okay, but there you have it. Now, Jane Doe 3 says that when she brought the issues that she was having with Danny to an ethics officer in the Church of Scientology, she was told by that ethics officer that it was her job as Danny's girlfriend to give him sex whenever he wants, and that if she complied, these things wouldn't happen. Now, everything that I've described thus far about the relationship between Jane Doe 3 and Danny Masterson was all just a part of their relationship that Jane Doe thought was kind of inherent to their partnership at the time. She didn't recognize anything that was happening to her as rape until an incident in November of 2001. She said, I was sleeping and I woke up and he was having sex with me and I did not want to. And I told him so. I said, no, I don't want to have sex. He wouldn't stop, and so I was trying to push him off me, and he would do this. He would put all of his body weight down on me. She said to get him off that she tried to pull Danny's hair, which resulted in Danny making loose-fisted punches to her face. She said, I was screaming, like, get off me. It was at the point when he stood up over me, and he spit on me, and he called me white trash. A month later, she said that she and Danny sat down for dinner at a French bistro, where she remembers having a glass or two of wine, then remembers getting up to leave, and nothing after that. The next memory she had was from the afternoon of the next day, when she woke up in bed in her home with no clothes on. She said, When I first woke up, I felt very confused, and I noticed my whole body hurt. I noticed that the back of my head hurt, like I hit it or something. I noticed that I was injured on my bottom. It was red, it was not normal, it was torn, and it had a little bleeding. I was in a lot of pain. I couldn't sit down, it hurt to go to the bathroom. I remember asking him what happened last night. I was very confused. He laughed at me and said he had sex with me there. I asked him if I was unconscious the whole time, and he said yes. It broke my heart because I really trusted him. Now, throughout most of this, Jane Doe was attending an ethics program through the Church of Scientology. When she told her ethics officer that Danny had been raping her, she alleges that she was told it was impossible for her to be raped by Danny because they were in a relationship, and she probably did something to deserve it. The Church of Scientology is an incredibly insular organization. The church upholds that problems can only ever really be solved using methods of Scientology, meaning that Scientologists are forbidden from reporting another Scientologist to any form of outside authority. As a Scientologist, you can't report another Scientologist to the police. It is considered a high crime and is grounds for being deemed a suppressive person. Being a suppressive person in the Church of Scientology 
means that you are essentially evil, and evil to the point that no other Scientologist can have any sort of contact with you. So the more Jane Doe 3 spoke to her ethics officer about Danny's abuse of her, the more she was threatened with being declared a suppressive person, which would have necessitated that all of her friends and family within the Church of Scientology, and at least in her case, I don't believe that she really had any family members in the church, since Danny was the one who got her into Scientology in the first place, but anyone that she knew or even just had professional connections with because she was also an actress would have to immediately cut ties with her if she made any sort of public statement against Danny or if she went to any sort of outside authority. At one point, her ethics officer presented her with a document that was essentially an NDA barring her from ever speaking about her relationship with Danny publicly, and though she signed that document, she claims that she was not actually permitted to read it or receive a copy of it after she signed. After her and Danny broke up, Jane Doe 3 would never really speak of the alleged rapes that she suffered while in a relationship with Danny until 2011 when she told her current husband about it and then spoke about it to an abuse and incest hotline as well as the Austin police in 2016. Next up we have Jane Doe 1, whose first alleged assault by Danny took place in September of 2002 when she says that he penetrated her anally against her will However, she was forced to make peace with him by ethics officers within the Church of Scientology. Then in April of 2003, she was allegedly assaulted by Danny again when she went to his house for a party. She said that throughout the night, she passed in and out of consciousness despite drinking only about half of a fruity vodka that Danny had handed her. After she started to feel kind of out of it, Danny picked her up and threw her in a jacuzzi. She said that she had trouble seeing and felt like she was going to throw up, so Danny volunteered to take her up to his bathroom, where he allegedly put his fingers down her throat to get her to vomit. She said Danny mocked her in the bathroom for having vomit all over her hair, and then he dragged her into a nearby stand-up shower. At some point, she said she realized Danny was in front of her, soaping her breasts with his hands. She said she took a swing at him, but she felt weak and the punch didn't land with much force. She went in and out of consciousness again, and the next thing she remembers is being in Danny's bed. She said, he was on top of me, his penis was inside of me, and that is what I woke up to. She said she tried to push him away as Danny continued to have sex with her, and then smothered her with a pillow. In the subsequent struggle, she said Danny reached into a drawer in a nightstand and pulled out a gun. She said he held it up and said, shut the fuck up. He said, you like this. He said, you're not going to tell fucking Lisa. You're not going to tell fucking Paige. After drifting in and out of consciousness again, she remembers hiding in a closet, hoping that Danny couldn't find her. And then the next morning, she went downstairs and bumped into Luke Watson, a friend of hers and Danny's, and another Scientologist. According to Jane Doe 1, Watson said, You're not going to say a word. You're going to go straight to the president's office now. She said that Watson had already told her that Danny had already been there to see the president himself. Now, unlike Jane Doe 3, Jane Doe 1 had been a Scientologist for a long time, and her family was involved in the organization. On the possibility of being deemed a suppressive person, she said, My life would be over. My parents would have to disconnect from me. My daughter couldn't go to her school. I wouldn't have anywhere to work or live. I wouldn't have anywhere to go. Jane Doe told her ethics officer, Julian Swartz, that she had already told a friend about what had happened to her at Danny's house. 
Swartz allegedly told her to go back to that friend and tell him that what she said about Danny was not true and she was just joking. She said she attempted to explain to Swartz that what had happened to her was rape. This infuriated Swartz who insisted to Jane Doe 1 that this was not rape and that she was not to use the R-word again. She then had to complete an ethics program that Swartz had designed, which required her to report to Swartz daily and get his permission to travel. She said the ethics program also included frequent and seemingly endless auditing sessions in which Jane Doe 1 was repeatedly asked to admit to past crimes that she allegedly committed during previous lifetimes. She was pressured into confessing to evil purposes she had toward Danny, Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, and others. So the manipulative tactics that the church uses against its own members is really imperative here to understanding why these women didn't necessarily see themselves as victims immediately, because the ethics programs that they were in was actively trying to convince them that they were responsible for their own trauma. Despite that, Jane Doe 1 seemed pretty resistant to the idea that she was not, in fact, a victim, which is impressive, given the amount of people that would have loved to convince her otherwise. So in December of 2003, when officials at the Church of Scientology realized that she was still telling friends and family that she had been sexually assaulted by Danny, she was of course threatened with the possibility of being deemed a suppressive person. In January of 2004, she said that she was made to undergo security checks or sec checks, which were used by the institution as a form of investigation. She said she was subjected to intense auditing that included reading reports written about her sexual assault, including those written by Danny and Luke Watson. Danny's reports included admissions about the sexual assault. She said at the conclusion of her sec check, Jane Doe 1 said she was forced to sit in a room alone with Danny so that they could clear the air. However, in April of 2004, about a year after the alleged assault, Jane Doe 1 wrote a letter to the church's international justice chief and asked for permission to bring criminal charges against Danny. Of course, the church responded by telling her that to report Danny to authorities would be a suppressive act, but in June of 2004, she made a police report anyway. She said in return, she received a letter from Danny where he stated words to the effect of, if you got hurt, sorry you got hurt. She said she was astonished that this was how Danny was attempting to apologize for raping her, and she was told that she was not allowed to keep that letter. To the police, she handed over Scientology reports from herself and Danny, as well as other related documents that she had acquired, and photographs. She said an ethics officer then called her and said, You're fucked. You have no idea how fucked you are. Now, the LAPD at the time decided not to press charges, but... We'll get to how fucked the LAPD has been on this matter later. Though she was threatened with being declared a suppressive person at the time, she actually wasn't made a suppressive person after she filed the initial charges against Danny. Instead, the church chose to settle with her and gave her $400,000 under the provision that she sign an NDA. Jane Doe 1 said that she was prevented from even touching the documents that she signed. She had to watch Danny's attorney turn the pages and show her where to put her name. And of course, she was prevented from having a copy of the agreement that she signed. Moving on to Jane Doe 2, her assault allegedly happened in 2003. Like with Jane Doe 4, she mentioned something about Danny staring at her in a really intense way. She said he had a very intent, predatory stare. 
One night he started texting her really rapidly and aggressively and demanding that she come over to his house. When she arrived at his house, he handed her a glass of red wine right away. She said he was standing, staring at me, and he said, drink it now. He continued pressuring her to drink the wine while they chatted. Then, like others previously, she started to feel really, really heavy and really intoxicated very quickly. Around that same time, he started demanding her to take her clothes off. And though she couldn't remember getting in, she somehow wound up in Danny's jacuzzi. She said, I didn't want to be in the jacuzzi. I did not want to have him touching my vagina. I didn't want sex of any kind. I'd said that. But when she was in the jacuzzi, she remembers him touching her in ways she didn't consent to. Then he ordered her to take a shower. Next thing she remembered, she was being penetrated in the shower. Of course, at this point, she was going in and out of consciousness, and the next thing she remembered, she was on his bed. She said, he flipped me over on the bed fast, and he started pounding me from behind. He was raping me. I was shocked, and I was like, oh my god, what are you doing? I told you not to do that. On top of it, he didn't have a condom on, and I freaked out. I said, if you're not going to listen to me, you have to put on a condom. It was like a jackhammer. Later on, she said she tried to recontextualize the incident so that it was not so violent. Unlike Jane Doe 3 and 1, Jane Doe 2 did not report the assault to the Church of Scientology, as she had already had a bad experience when she attempted to tell church officials that her former boyfriend had raped her a few months prior. She did, however, tell her mother right after the assault. Her mother said, She said he was coming at her from behind like a jackhammer and relentless, and she told him to stop and he wouldn't stop. When asked if Jane Doe 2 had ever used the word rape in the conversation, her mother replied, Not that I remember. I remember her saying she was being pounded. She also told her friend Rachel Smith about the encounter. Smith said, She was quite confused. She just told me that she went over to his place and he was very demanding. She said she begged him not to have sex and the next thing she knew was it was really rough and violent like a jackhammer. She was out of it. After that, Smith said that Jane Doe 2's behavior changed rapidly. She said she became erratic and more needy. Smith told the court one day she showed up at my place, crying at four in the morning. She became a handful. She also told her friend Jordan Ladd, who immediately recognized what Jane Doe 2 was recounting to her, was date rape. Later in 2011, Jane Doe 2 told Danny's former assistant, Bree Schaefer. She said at the time that she believed that Schaefer was no longer associated with Danny. However, soon after she told her, other Scientologists began to disconnect from Jane Doe 2. The last public allegation we have is from a person that I'm going to refer to as Jane Doe 5. Jane Doe 5 did go to the LAPD with her allegations, but she was the one that I guess the LAPD decided that there wasn't enough corroborating evidence to charge Danny with those crimes. So she's not a part of the criminal trial at all, but she is a part of the civil lawsuit, which we'll talk about in a second. She tweeted in 2018, I stayed quiet long enough. Danny Masterson repeatedly raped me. All I see is justice and to prevent this from ever happening to anyone else as it has for some time. My truth will be heard. I applaud Jane Doe 3's strength as well. Jane Doe 5 dated Danny in the early 2000s. She said while they were dating, she started to notice that whenever Danny made or served her a drink, she would black out frequently and wake up unable to remember anything from the night before. And then she said on or around June 22, 2003, her and Danny attended an award ceremony together, and that night she woke up in their hotel room to find Danny having sex with her. She said she felt incapacitated and fell in and out of consciousness during the assault. 
The following morning, she had swollen and sore genitals and no recollection of how she received the injuries. She said that Danny continued to assault her in a similar way throughout the rest of their relationship, and on numerous occasions when she spent the night at his house, she would wake up to Danny having sex with her. Toward the end of their relationship, she said that this happened almost nightly. Now, we're gonna get into some of the corroborating evidence for all of those claims in a second, but first I want us to take stock of all the similarities amongst these statements. So multiple women mentioned Danny looking at them with a really cold, intense stare. All of them recount going in and out of consciousness after drinking something that Danny served them. All of them speak of the alleged assault as being incredibly rough, and multiple women use the specific word pounding. And then interestingly, two women mentioned Danny taking them into a shower. Now, I don't think I mentioned it earlier, but Jane Doe 3 has also mentioned something about a shower before. I don't think that she's alleged that Danny... Oh, well, I guess you would consider this assault. She... But it wasn't like... It wasn't the same kind of assault as the other things she alleged, but while she was in a relationship with Danny, she said that he did sometimes think it was funny to start peeing on her when she was showering. So, uh, just another shower mention there. But regardless, two women mentioned Danny taking them to a shower. And Danny has actually said something publicly about taking women to a shower before. Make sure you ask the Masterson his advice, the best way to make a move on a girl once you've got him back to your place. Oh, you just invite him for a shower. <laughs> of course. <laughs> that's the move that's been missing. Yeah. You say, you need to clean yourself? Well, you know, you say, let's go clean ourselves together. Uh, like, it's conversational. Like, you know, like, we're, you're like, oh, we should go take a shower. Do you ever pat him on the ass and say, good game, let's hit the showers? After the shower. <laughs> After you've had a good game. <laughs> then you give them a... Right. Good game. Obviously, in that interview, he was making it seem like he consensually takes women up to a shower with him as, like, a part of his, I guess, like, foreplay or something. I don't know. But it is just kind of interesting that Danny himself does admit to having a pattern of taking women up to a shower with him. And two of these women said that he did so non-consensually. Multiple of these women also mentioned that they were not just raped vaginally, but anally. And for a bit of time in his early career, Danny actually worked as a DJ. And from 1997 to 2003, he went by the stage name DJ Donkey Punch. Donkey Punch is slang for an act of sexual assault in which a man having sex with a woman anally punches her in the back of the neck to get her asshole to clench up. It's so funny because uh, my understanding too is that it was very popular among the, the uh, prison uh, world, this phrase, donkey punch. But yeah. when you go online, it's all heterosexual, everything's fine, this is what happens to your girlfriend or sexy lady partner. Exactly. Yeah. And the thing is, is that when, when I had the donkey punch, it was a shot to the ribs. Really? That made the cough ah. to release the back muscles. I... <laughs> <laughs> but, then, but then I think it became back, back of the, of the head, head where you knock somebody out or something. Yeah. And that's not the donkey punch I know. That's not the one you condone. No. No, no, no. 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 Because that's violent. 
this isn't the only time that Danny has kind of made a joke about behavior that is pretty nasty and behavior that he himself has kind of been accused of doing something similar to. I mentioned earlier that Jane Doe 3 alleges that in her relationship with Danny, he at least on one occasion took a nude photo of her, which he refused to delete. And that is a pretty gross violation of someone's privacy and sexual autonomy. And while it doesn't seem to have happened here in the exact same context, Danny did make a joke about having nude photos of Ashton Kutcher. I have more photos of Commando Kutcher here, naked in a club, than probably anybody. No way. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. Only With my had, Polaroid. Like, after it closed. Well, you know. The full Kutcher. Yeah. No, you have zero pictures of the full Kutcher. Mm, okay. It's funny you should say that, but no. Now, Ashton seems to take that statement in pretty good humor, but I don't think it's a coincidence that some of the things Danny has been accused of are also things that he readily jokes about doing. Moving on, the primary defense that Danny's team is taking is to accuse Jane Doe's 1 through 3 of having some sort of vendetta against the Church of Scientology, and their allegations are just a part of an organized conspiracy to take Danny and the Church down. But let's remember that though the three women whose rapes he's being charged with are former Scientologists, Jane Doe 4 and Jane Doe 5 were never Scientologists and they also allege that they were raped by Danny. What their motives would be, I don't know. But more importantly, all of these allegations existed prior to any time in which these women could collaborate with one another and conspire against Danny or the church. So first off, there is record of Jane Doe 1 and 3 making reports to the Church of Scientology about their alleged assaults almost immediately after they happened in the early 2000s. Jane Doe 1 also, of course, made a report to police in 2004. In addition to that, she told her non-Scientologist cousin Rachel about the alleged assault around the same time. And Lisa Marie Presley, who was friends with Jane Doe 1 at the time and was raised in the Church of Scientology before she disconnected, told the LAPD during their later investigation that she had been asked by the Church of Scientology to persuade Jane Doe 1 to not report Danny to the police. While Presley initially complied with that, once she broke away from the Church of Scientology later in life, she reportedly apologized to Jane Doe 1 in 2014. Presley was actually on the witness list at the start of the criminal trial back in October, but she was never called to the stand. There was a question about if she would actually testify in the upcoming retrial, but she's dead now, so... As I mentioned earlier, Jane Doe 2 told her friends Rachel Smith and Jordan Ladd, as well as her mother shortly after the alleged assault. Jane Doe 3 told her husband about the assault in 2011, and there is record of her calling the abuse and incest hotline in 2016, as well as making an Austin police report in 2016. Now, what led up to her making that report was Jane Doe 3 having a conversation with Damien Perkins, who was actually a witness from the night that Jane Doe 1 was assaulted. Damien Perkins was not called as a witness in the criminal trial, for what reason, I don't know. 
but Tony Ortega at the Underground Bunker published the letter that he sent to the LAPD back in 2017 while they were investigating Jane Doe 1 and Jane Doe 3's claims. In the letter he wrote, About a year and three months ago, I spoke with Danny Masterson's ex-girlfriend Jane Doe 3. She asked me about something unrelated and she didn't really know my friend Jane Doe 1. I said to her out of the blue that I believed that Danny had raped Jane Doe 1 and asked if he'd done something like that to her. She freaked out and said, oh my god, he did that to me all the time and used to beat the shit out of me. That began a snowball effect, and here we are. So Perkins had been at the party where Jane Doe 1 alleges she was assaulted. Here's what he writes about that night. The beginning of what happened was at the pool. Danny yelled at Jane Doe 1 and everyone, Jane Doe 1's going in the pool. He then pushed her into his jacuzzi. Jane Doe 1 had only had one drink, and although I did not see Danny make it, she clearly remembers that he made her a drink in a red cup, and she drank part of it before he shoved her into the jacuzzi. She got out of the pool, and I went over as well to make sure she was cool. There were about 10 to 15 people out back, if I recall correctly. She was a little quiet and irritated. I was irritated toward Danny that he had done that to her. I asked to get a towel, but rather quickly, Danny had brought her one and wrapped it around her. Luke Watson and Danny sort of got in between her and me physically to take over. Danny said he was going to take her upstairs and help her dry off. And myself and a couple others were like, whoa. We were just teasing him as never in a million years would we have thought that he would do anything to her. Danny said, no, it's not like that. I would never do anything. She's my homie. Danny picked her up and began to bring her upstairs. I remember she was resisting, but she seemed a bit drunk and out of it at that point. Again, I was just thinking that Danny was going to dry her off and get her some fresh clothes. I didn't think anything more about it as I knew she was in good hands and I continued hanging out with people at the party. At some point, about an hour or an hour and a half later, I recall seeing Jane Doe 1 who came up to me. She said, oh my god, Danny just raped me. Her hair was still a bit wet and she had bare feet. I remember feeling shocked and then Luke Watson saying, no, that's not what happened. I was very concerned as she was loopy. I asked what was wrong with her. Luke and someone else said, we think someone roofied her at the club. I remember trying to help her as well as get her some water in the kitchen, and she was sort of stumbling around, and Luke and Danny wanted to get her back upstairs. I thought to myself, that makes sense why she's acting so weird. She didn't want me to interfere, though, and I remember thinking that they would get her back upstairs and she would sleep it off and be better. Again, the thought never entered my mind that Danny would have or could have raped her right there at the party, especially with people downstairs, and especially not to Jane Doe 1. This all happened very fast, but Danny had her by the waist and was dragging her back upstairs. She was screaming and yelling at him, get the fuck off me, get the fuck off me, and cursing at him. I remember myself and others kind of yelling up toward her, it's okay, calm down, he's going to take care of you, and other things. And in my mind, I remember thinking about how messed up it was that somebody would have drugged her at the club. As best I can recall, after that, she quieted down and I didn't hear anything from her. I stayed and hung out for another 45 minutes or so and was again in the living room with Jimmy when I heard somebody wanting to get in the gate into the house. It was Bree Schaefer. Danny came downstairs. I remember he had his shirt off and he and Luke yell whispered at us, don't let her in, don't fucking let her in. I literally laughed as I didn't understand why they were being so dramatic. I remember then leaving the drama in the living room to go back to the backyard and smoke again. After a short while, I recall being asked to leave. There were literally only three or four of us at that point. I remember Bree escorting me, walking down the front steps, and leaving. I remember still being concerned about Jane Doe 1. Not that she had been raped, again, that was not a thought in my mind, but that she had been drugged. I knew that she was okay, though, and was sleeping it off. I assumed Luke and Danny were caring for her. The next day, I tried to call her several times, and her phone was off. 
I believe the day after that, I was called into the Celebrity Center and told by the ethics officer in no uncertain terms that Danny had not done anything to Jane Doe 1 and that she had simply drunk too much and somebody roofied her drink. That was 100% acceptable to me at the time. I was a hardcore Scientologist and what they say you believed and followed unconditionally. And they told me she was doing ethics handling to help her. So even though Damien Perkins was a witness on the night that Jane Doe 1 was allegedly raped, he was not ever called as a witness during the trial. Now, there are a couple reasons that the criminal trial that began in October of last year was deemed a mistrial. The main reason is that the jury just couldn't come to an agreement, and a majority of them actually sided with Danny, which is terrifying. But we should also keep in mind that there were changes made to the jury pool right before the verdict, because this all happened around November, they went on break for Thanksgiving at one point, and then I think like two jurors got COVID during that time, so they couldn't come back to the trial, and there were replacement jurors who hadn't been there for the entire trial. It was just kind of a mess, but the thing that we should really keep in mind is that the jury didn't hear some pretty significant evidence, including the witness testimony of Damien Perkins. And there were also some restrictions put on the prosecutor's case where they couldn't really get into the allegations against the Church of Scientology specifically because the Church of Scientology wasn't on trial, Danny Masterson was, even though the Church of Scientology played a pretty integral role in covering up these alleged assaults. A primary point of concern, though, is that all of this is going through the LAPD. And if you don't know much about the LAPD, they're terrible. We don't have time to get into the entire history of that, but let's just say the LAPD has been involved in many high-profile cases in which they did not come out of those stories looking very good. And the LAPD has known associations with the Church of Scientology who has put on many fundraisers for them in the past. When the Huffington Post started reporting on the allegations against Danny Masterson in 2017, they ran an article in which they said, According to two sources with knowledge of the case, Jane Doe 1's case file from 2004 vanished, leaving Deputy District Attorney Reinhold Mueller to reconstruct it. In April 2017, police referred the case to the district attorney. Since then, the district attorney's office has examined the evidence turned over by the LAPD and conducted its own investigation. Despite compelling what one law enforcement source described as overwhelming evidence, the charges have not been approved for filing. The evidence includes audio tapes, emails sent to and from Scientology officers at the time the alleged rapes happened, forensic computer evidence, and a threatening handwritten letter Masterson sent to one of the alleged victims, according to two people with knowledge of the evidence in the district attorney's possession. The Huffington Post also obtained a phone call between one of the alleged victims and Jenny Weinman, Danny Masterson's longtime publicist. The Huffington Post writes, Two of the women accusing Masterson of rape have told HuffPost that Weinman played an integral role in covering up Masterson's alleged crimes. Huffington Post also posted a short excerpt of the transcript of the call between one of the victims and Jenny Weinman, where Weinman said that Jane Doe 3 could not have been raped by Danny because they were in a relationship at the time. 
Jane Doe 3 also alleges that after she came forward to the police about her alleged assault in 2017, Jenny Weinman then forwarded her a letter from Danny Masterson that contained threatening, abusive, and harassing language. Now, of those who have spoken about the process of having these allegations investigated, they have not had very many good things to say about the way the LAPD has handled this case. Jane Doe 3 said, I was told that my report was transferred out of the Wilcox location into downtown due to known leaks within the Hollywood division when I received a phone call from Detective Rays later that day. She warned me that I am not to speak to any other officer or anyone claiming to be an officer. She told me that she has taken our police reports out of the LAPD computer so that no one could see them. She said she had them in a vault that only she and her captain could access. She told me that this was done to safeguard the case after she agreed that there are leaks in the LAPD and that some LAPD officers are very friendly with the Church of Scientology. She said that Rays asked her and the other victims to make controlled phone calls to try to get Danny and others to talk about the alleged crimes. The victims were each assigned phone numbers that they could give out so that if Danny or other witnesses called it, the calls would be automatically reported by the LAPD. Jane Doe 3 complained that Detective Rays never gave her much guidance on the phone calls except to tell her that it would be acceptable if she lied during the conversations. She wrote, Rays told me many times that the DA said that if we fail the recorded phone calls, then Rays would have to find other victims independently of me and the other known victims. But besides the phone calls, there were witnesses to the incidents, and although Rays said they would be interviewed, they have not been interviewed at this point. Jane Doe 3 also discovered that the phone number that had been assigned to Jane Doe 4, when looked up on the internet, returned results that said, do not call this number, it is a police sting number. So Detective Rays assigned a phone number to Jane Doe 4 that had already been used in a separate case and was known to be associated with a police investigation. Jane Doe 3 said that Rays continued to put pressure on her to get better information in her recorded phone calls and that time was running out. She said, She suggested I up the heat on the publicist. Not knowing what that meant and being under tremendous pressure to not fail Rays or the case, I gave the publicist an ultimatum. I told the publicist that if Danny doesn't do the right thing and apologize to me, that I would back Jane Doe 4 up and go public as well. She said, Rays then accused me of ruining the calls with my ultimatum. So instead of Rays thanking me for spending the past month constantly making heart-wrenching calls to truly horrible people, she blamed me for ruining this part of the case. Danny's people are collecting the witnesses to get them on the same page. I asked Rays why she won't get their official statements before they are compromised. She told me again that she is looking for other victims. She said a couple weeks earlier, Rays had said something to her that now seemed to be prescient. Rays totally out of the blue told me that at any time, I can walk away from the case. She told me she would not be mad at me. No one would be mad at me. She would totally understand. It felt like she wanted me to walk away. After all that, Jane Doe 3 asked Rays for a copy of her police report. Jane Doe 3 wrote in her email that instead of a rape investigation, the charge was listed as sodomy, which carries a lesser potential penalty, and the description of the incident was poorly written and inaccurate. At the time all of this was written, it said that Jane Doe 3 tried to get the rest of the report, but so far hadn't been able to. And during the trial, Jane Doe 2 said, 
Ray's was doing things that were very, very shady and suspicious to me regarding our case. I felt we were in danger and I felt something was going on. She was sending me happy face emojis. She was not interviewing the witnesses. She was not professional. Now, after these alleged victims were able to recognize what had happened to them was rape, a few of them reached out to Leah Remini, who had written a book about her time in Scientology and was making the show on A&E called Scientology in the Aftermath. It's not the point of this video, but I want it known that I fucking love Leah Remini. Now, Leah, as she would, because she's amazing, took these women's allegations very seriously and met with Detective Rays from the LAPD. Leah said, I told her these victims deserve to be heard. I pointed out to her that there was a framed picture of a Scientologist on their wall, actor Michael Pena. Do you know what that says to a young Scientologist who comes here to seek justice? My experience with the LAPD has not been good. I asked her to do the right thing by these girls, and I told her that the world is watching. So I've mentioned a few times that there are five women who have come forward publicly with their allegations, those being Jane Doe's one through five, but there are other victims whose stories we have not heard yet. In 2020, the underground bunker reported that the LAPD had formally contacted at least seven women alleging sexual assault. Then, in September of 2022, the underground bunker reported that law enforcement was informed of another victim. So we are aware of five women who have come forward, and Jane Doe 5 we only really know about because she's a part of the civil lawsuit against the Church of Scientology, and she made that tweet in 2018 alleging that she was raped by Danny Masterson. But she's not involved in the criminal trial at all. But I have no information about these other potential three victims, two of which have at least been contacted by the LAPD, and the other law enforcement has at least been informed of, why those allegations are not a part of the charges against Danny, or at least being brought forward as some sort of witness like Jane Doe 4 was brought forward, I don't know. Even if these other three women didn't want to testify in court against Danny, I don't see why they can't make some sort of anonymous statement that could at least be presented as evidence of a pattern of behavior in any sort of upcoming trial. Maybe they will be when the case gets retried in March. But at this moment, the only thing I can conclude is that these allegations exist. But I definitely would not blame any of these women for not coming forward themselves because the women who have come forward have alleged some pretty heinous harassment that they have received, particularly at the hands of the Church of Scientology itself. The church also practices something that they call fair game, which means that they have taken on the perspective that anything they have to do to silence opposition from a suppressive person is warranted. So there are five plaintiffs involved in the civil lawsuit against the church. Jane Doe 1, Jane Doe 2, Jane Doe 3, Jane Doe 3's husband, and Jane Doe 5. There are a few things that all of them claim to have gone through as victims of fair game. So all of them allege that at various points their cart doors or trunks would just be found open, indicating that someone was breaking into their cars. They've all had people rummaging through their trash. At least two of them allege that they had to move to a new house to get better security, 
but once they moved there, even though the house they selected was pretty much covered by trees on the adjacent properties, so it would be harder for other people to spy on them from outside their property, once they moved into those houses, a bunch of those trees on different lots started disappearing. And two of them alleged to have had trees on their own property poisoned so that those trees, too, had to be cut down. They all alleged to have been harassed and stalked in public. A few of them alleged that they have been involved in car chases in which they were ran off the road. They have had their social media accounts and emails hacked. They've had their home security systems hacked. Their cell phones have been hacked and bugged. Jane Doe 1 said that her cell phone map application would frequently malfunction and redirect her to a neighboring property instead of her own home. They've had their bank accounts compromised and been victims of credit card fraud. Jane Doe 1, Jane Doe 3, and Damian Perkins have all claimed to have found Steve Miller surveilling them. Now, at first, when I read that in the complaint, I thought, Steve Miller, that sounds like Steve Miller Band. But it couldn't be the same person, right? I mean, Steve Miller isn't a totally uncommon name, I wouldn't think. So they must be talking about someone else? But then I looked it up, and apparently Steve Miller, of the Steve Miller Band, is a pretty dedicated Scientologist. So I'm still not really sure if that's who they're referring to when they say that Steve Miller was harassing them. They only refer to him in this lawsuit as an agent of the defendant, so an agent of Scientology. They don't clarify if they are talking about the musician Steve Miller. Um. But given that Steve Miller is a known Scientologist, I, I guess that that's not out of the question. Maybe that is him. I mean, I mean, is he, like, still making music? Maybe he doesn't really have anything else to do? But it did make me think of the episode of that 70s show where they do play the Steve Miller band song, The Joker. Some people call me the Space Cowboy. Some call me the gangster of love. <laughs> and so I kind of wonder, since it's sort of a pain in the ass to license songs like that on a TV show, I mean, not impossible, and that 70s show was certainly pretty successful, so it's not like they didn't have money to license a song like that, but I wonder if it was easier for them to get the rights to that song because Danny Masterson was in the Church of Scientology, maybe he had a connection to Steve Miller and was like, hey, I can get us the rights to the Steve Miller band's music pretty easily. I don't know. Just a thing that I, I thought of. All right, so I had to go to work, so it's a new day and that's why I look different now. But in the gap between when I last filmed and now, I remembered that in the HBO documentary about Scientology called Going Clear, there was a guy who said that he got into Scientology because of a certain band. And I went back and I looked and that band was the Steve Miller Band. I guess he knew the organ player or something. But that same guy also said that one of the things that really got him into Scientology was the appeal of the celebrities who are also in the organization. So that gives us an opportunity to kind of break away from this specific story for a second just to talk about the general issue of celebrities in the Church of Scientology. 
Because obviously celebrities or just the basic concept of celebrity are things that are very compelling to people, just inherently. Thus, celebrity is capital. Tabloids know that, Hollywood casting directors know that, any brand or product with celebrity ambassadors knows that, politicians know that, and of course, Scientology knows that. That's why they have a celebrity center. The organization goes out of its way to protect men like Danny Masterson or Tom Cruise, who's also allegedly a big piece of shit, or John Travolta, who has been accused of sexually assaulting and harassing many men throughout his career. Scientology's hold over high-profile members of Hollywood is kind of the key to their success. That and, like, real estate scams? Because Scientology actually doesn't have that many members. It's hard to give an exact number since the church is so secretive and also kind of lies to their own membership about how many members of Scientology there are. They will say that it's in the millions. Current estimates, though, are about 20,000 worldwide. And to put that in perspective, there are about 3.4 billion Buddhists in the U.S. alone. So just compared to other religions, Scientology is absolutely tiny in its membership but they are willing to spend a lot of time, money, and resources to recruit, promote, and protect their very high-profile members. For only having about 20,000 members total, Scientology has a lot of celebrities in their membership, like Tom Cruise, John Travolta, Kirstie Alley up until her death, Juliette Lewis, Jenna Elfman, Elizabeth Moss, Laura Prepon until recently, who was actually brought into the church because of Danny Masterson and her relationship with Danny's brother, Chris Masterson, who played Francis on Malcolm in the Middle. And that one makes me really, really sad because Malcolm in the Middle is probably my favorite sitcom, and Chris contributed toward paying Danny's $3.3 million bail to not just sit in jail while this trial goes on. So not only do I have trouble watching that 70s show now, I also feel a little bit of pain when I watch Malcolm in the Middle, which is a bigger deal. And just to ruin another sitcom for you, quite a few of the cast members on My Name is Earl are or were Scientologists at the time the show was on, to the point that some people have alleged the show was actually just low-key Scientology propaganda. Hollywood has a ridiculous amount of power over pretty much the entire Western society and culture, and Scientology has a ridiculous amount of power in Hollywood. And they maintain that power by using things like fair game. Though these fair game tactics can and sometimes are used against individuals who haven't made accusations against people quite as famous as Danny Masterson, the intensity of this process is undoubtedly influenced by the fact that Danny Masterson is a celebrity who Scientology feels like they need to protect. Going back to the tactics used against Danny's accusers specifically, as I just mentioned, three of the plaintiffs allege they encountered Steve Miller at some point, and then all of them at some point encountered a woman named Kathy Gold, who is also a Scientologist. And in their lawsuit, it states, Gold threatened to commit serious and violent crimes against plaintiffs, including murder. Gold accused plaintiffs of being religious bigots and liars. To Jane Doe 3 specifically, Gold allegedly threatened to report her to child services to have Jane Doe 3's then five-year-old twins taken away from her and further threatened that the children would be drugged and raped. 
Some other things that happened to Jane Doe 3, allegedly, it says the defendants fraudulently registered Jane Doe 3's vehicle so that it appeared stolen. Jane Doe 3 has been targeted for harassment via social media, including by anonymous and or unidentified individuals that utilized information that could be gathered only from Scientology's auditing files. One post apparently said that Jane Doe 3 was reminiscing about all the anal sex she obviously misses. There were also allegedly fake ads posted by Scientologists on Craigslist which purport to be Jane Doe 3 soliciting anal sex from strangers. In June of 2019, an agent of Scientology and friend of Danny Masterson's contacted Jane Doe 3 and threatened to leak underage nude photos of her. And still, none of that compares to me to one of the other allegations that exists in this filing and then also separately after this filing was made. Jane Doe 3 and her husband, who is also a part of this lawsuit, allege that two of their dogs were killed. So in the lawsuit, they mention that one of their dogs just appeared one day with unexplained traumatic injuries to the neck. Then in 2020 on Instagram, they posted a photo of a different dog and captioned it, We had to put her down today. This is the result of eating rat poison rolled up in raw meat. This is the second dog we've had to put down due to the harassment from private investigators and Scientologists. This only makes us stronger. My boys named her Biscuit. They still don't understand what's happening. We said goodbye to her and let her go peacefully. Then for some of Jane Doe 1's allegations, she said a woman once used a flashlight and pointed the beams into various windows of her home, including the bedroom of her children. She said she found phallic clay objects that had been thrown into her backyard. She also became the victim of prescription fraud. Jane Doe 5 alleges that she was also the victim of harassment, despite the fact that she's not even a part of the criminal trial against Danny. This is the woman who made the tweet in 2018. She apparently owns a food truck, and she said that her food truck was vandalized by Scientologists. On more than one occasion, unknown individuals attempted to break into her food truck. There were false reviews posted about her food truck online, and an unknown individual or individuals attempted to list her food truck for sale. Her family's physical safety has also been compromised, as she alleges that one night, at approximately one in the morning, someone from the Church of Scientology threw something through a window where her 13-year-old child slept. Shortly after speaking with the police, she said that one night when she was at a restaurant, she began being taunted by others in the restaurant talking loudly of anal sex and rape. And when she later left the restaurant, those same people left as well and followed her to her car. So not only were these women allegedly raped in the early 2000s, they have since been terrorized for coming forward about those rapes. The fact that no one who has been associated with Danny in the past has really made a definitive stance against him is pretty disturbing. Laura Prepon certainly knows more than she's ever let on, because she was incredibly close with Danny when those alleged rapes first happened and those women were going to the church about it. Laura was also a part of the Church of Scientology at that time, and allegedly took part in the effort to silence at least Jane Doe 1, who said that she had an encounter with Laura in early 2004, right after she told the church about her alleged rape. A source told the underground bunker that she saw Laura in the parking lot at the Celebrity Center when Laura started asking her questions like, why are you at CC? What are you doing here? Why aren't you hanging out with the crowd? And the source said, Jane Doe 1 knew exactly what was going on. She had to act chipper, like nothing was wrong, and yet she couldn't say why she was really there. Prepon even asked her if she was upset with Danny, and she had to say no. 
The article writes, Our source explained that if Jane Doe 1 had answered in any negative way or acted curt or rude, Prepon could have written her up and it would mean a declare order for her and her excommunication, forcing disconnection from her by family members. It's not unusual for a Scientologist to be written up for being rude or antisocial. And Jane Doe 1 had been written up for something similar just six months before. She told me that she had known Laura well before this and these weren't the kind of questions she would simply ask a friend, the source says. Jane Doe 1 told her friend that the encounter with Laura Prepon in the parking lot at the Hollywood Celebrity Center was one of the most difficult things she had to go through during the entire ordeal, and there was no doubt in her mind that Prepon had been sent there to trip her up on Masterson's behalf. Now that's just an allegation, and it's pretty speculative as to Laura's motives in that encounter. But since we know that Lisa Marie Presley has also alleged that she was asked by the Church of Scientology to persuade Jane Doe 1 specifically from not making any allegations against Danny, this definitely fits in line with the kind of tactics that the church would use. Now in 2021, Laura actually told People Magazine that she had left Scientology about five years prior, so around like 2016. And the statement she made I thought was pretty disingenuous. She said, I'm no longer practicing Scientology. I've always been very open-minded ever since I was a kid. I was raised Catholic and Jewish. I've prayed in churches, meditated in temples. I've studied Chinese meridian theory. I haven't practiced Scientology in close to five years and it's no longer a part of my life. So she mentions leaving Scientology pretty casually as if it was just something that sort of occurred naturally in her life. And I can't disprove that that's the case, but I don't think it makes much sense. Because literally one year prior to her not practicing Scientology anymore, she was on the cover of Scientology's Celebrity Magazine. She talked in the interview about how much she loved the church, and she also mentioned that she was doing New Era Dianetics. Obviously, we don't have the time to fully discuss what that means, but basically what you need to know about that is, this indicates that Laura was pretty deep into Scientology. She had spent a lot of time doing auditing sessions. She sunk who even knows how much money into the organization. She was very, very dedicated. If you want to learn about this from the perspective of a former Scientologist, you can watch Aaron Smith Levin's video talking about Laura Prepon, where he discusses why this wouldn't have just been a casual decision for Laura. But if you know anything about cults and the emotional manipulation that happens within them, it's pretty obvious that Laura and the church didn't just grow apart naturally. It would kind of be like if Laura had been a part of the People's Temple and she made it all the way to Jonestown and then left right before everyone drank the Kool-Aid. And then when she was asked about it later, was just like, yeah, I just decided it wasn't for me after all. Like, bitch, you were so dedicated to the religion that you moved continents. Clearly, something happened specifically that caused you to leave. So, of course, there's speculation that Laura's exit had something to do with the allegations against Danny. It wasn't until 2017 that the allegations became super public, but 2016 was the year that the allegations were beginning to be made to the police. So Scientology was almost certainly aware that these women were coming forward. Might that have sparked something in Laura to go, what the fuck am I a part of? I gotta get out of here? Perhaps. But 2016 is also the year that Laura announced her engagement to her current husband, and her current husband is also not a Scientologist. We don't know exactly what year her and that guy got together, because the announcement of their engagement was like the announcement of their relationship, but 
if they got together around that time and he wasn't super into Scientology, maybe that's what pulled her out of the religion? But even then, I don't know that that means that Laura has super positive feelings towards Scientology currently. Now I want to focus a bit on Ashton Kutcher, since it was his comments defending Danny, or at least not condemning Danny, which I think is kind of the same thing at this point, that made me so angry I wanted to make this video in the first place. Because Ashton has never actually identified himself as a Scientologist, I don't think he actually is a Scientologist, but he is definitely very close and cozy with Scientology. Beyond just Danny Masterson and Danny's family. Throughout his career, Ashton has had pretty close associations with members of the church, including members of his professional team, like his assistant. I don't know if it's his current assistant, but at least at some point, his personal assistant was a Scientologist. And a lot of his buddies appear to be Scientologists, because that wedding that Ashton was photographed with Danny at in 2018 was a Scientology wedding. And there are videos from the early 2000s of Ashton and the other cast members of that 70s show, Sans One, performing at fundraisers for the Church of Scientology. Or not, I guess, fundraisers for the church, but fundraisers put on by the church for what they label as underserved kids, which is really a fundraiser for a charity run by the LAPD. So that kind of goes back to the LAPD having some uncomfortable closeness with the church. So you'll see here, these are all the main cast members of that 70s show, Ashton, Mila, Laura, and Wilmer Valderrama. The only person that's missing on this stage is Topher Grace. Now back when the show was on, people used to talk shit about Topher Grace a lot because he didn't really hang out with the rest of the cast all that much as far as like offset time. And there was this thing said about him that, like, on his last day, he just kind of left without saying goodbye to anybody. So there was always these rumors that Topher didn't get along with the rest of the cast, even though he says that he did and they were all friends. He didn't hang out with them socially the way that the rest of the cast hung out together. And for a long time, Topher Grace was painted as, like, a dick for that. Like, he was super standoffish and the rest of the cast was really nice. But knowing everything we know now... Maybe he was right to not want to hang out with them. I don't know. I'm kind of a Topher Grace apologist, though. You don't want to know my opinions about Spider-Man 3. They're not popular. So a minute ago, I mentioned a YouTuber named Aaron Smith Levin, who made a video talking about Laura Prepon and her exit from Scientology. His channel is called Growing Up in Scientology. I watch it sometimes. I like to hear the perspective of people who were actually in the church at some point, as he was. He was a former member of the Church of Scientology. He worked in the Sea Org. So, big fan of Aaron. He made a video called Ashton Kutcher's Lies Allowed Michael Gargiulo to Kill Again. And that is quite the title. Um, we do need to put some big asterisks by this claim. As far as I'm aware, there isn't much documented evidence supporting what Aaron says in the video. Aaron makes these claims because he is a former Scientologist who has connections to people who are or were in the Church of Scientology around the time the events he's talking about took place. So there's no way for me to really know if the accusations in this video are accurate because I don't know who Aaron's sources for this information are. And normally, I try not to spread claims that I don't think I have, like, a good paper trail to back up. But in this scenario, I do think that the story that Aaron tells in the video 
do kind of make sense. So, yeah, this involves, like, a murder case. A somewhat famous one, too, because Michael Gargiulo is sometimes referred to as the Hollywood Ripper. He's a serial killer and rapist who killed, like, at least three people, but from statements he gave to the detectives during the investigation, it might be closer to, like, ten people? He was convicted and sentenced in July of 2021, but in 2001, he murdered a woman named Ashley Ellerin when he stabbed her 47 times in her Hollywood home. Ashton Kutcher became a part of this case because he was kind of dating Ashley when she was murdered. A lot of the stories reporting on this will refer to Ashley Ellerin as Ashton Kutcher's girlfriend. I don't think that they were ever actually boyfriend and girlfriend at the time. I think they had only gone on, like, a couple of dates, maybe not even, like, one official date. This might have been their first date date. On this night that she was murdered, he was going to take her to a Grammy's after party, but there's nothing to indicate that they were in a serious relationship. In fact, after the murder, another guy, I guess it was, like, her landlord or something, said that he had actually had sex with Ashley earlier that day, and that I don't bring that up just to get in Ashley's business, but I do just want it on the record that Ashley did not appear to be, like, tied down to Ashton whatsoever. And I say that because when the trial happened a few years ago, I think that Ashton's grief was really, really overemphasized in a lot of the reporting. I don't want to undermine what Ashton went through at all. I'm sure this entire event was traumatizing to him in some way. But this was like a 22-year-old girl. She was going to school for fashion design. People said that she really did want to like make a name for herself in the industry. So imagine being horrifically murdered at 22 and then for the rest of history after your murder, a vast majority of the news stories about you contextualize your entire life as the murdered girlfriend of a dude you went on a couple dates with. And everyone is talking about how sad it is for him that you were killed. So anyway. The story Ashton told to police, which was recounted across media outlets, has always been Ashton showed up to Ashley's house a few hours late for their date in the evening. He had called her a few times. The first time, he just let her know that he was running late. She was like, okay, that's fine. Then he called her again. She didn't answer. He went to her house anyway, and he said, I knocked on the door, no answer. I knocked again, no answer. I tried the front doorknob, and it was locked. He said he went to the window because he thought it was odd that the lights were on. He said it looked like a bit of a mess, but he didn't think anything of it because she had just moved in, and he saw what he thought was red wine spilled on the carpet. He said, I wasn't alarmed because I knew I had just been at the housewarming party at her house, and that was kind of a college party. The red wine turned out to be blood, which was discovered after Ashley's body was discovered by her roommate the next morning. Ashton said that after he found out about Ashley's murder, he called the police because he was worried that his fingerprints were on the doorknob and he would be a suspect. So that's Ashton's story. Now, Aaron, in his video, proposes a different sequence of events. Through his previous connections at the Church of Scientology, Aaron says that what actually happened is this. As Ashton said, he did come to Ashley's house a little bit late, he knocked on the door, he attempted to open the front door, and he succeeded. He then saw Ashley's body on the floor and the entire crime scene, he freaked out, he ran out of the house, he went to his car, and he made a couple phone calls, none of which included the police. According to Aaron, 
Ashton called members of his team, which included members of the Church of Scientology, and he called Danny Masterson because Danny and Ashton were besties. Ashton's team advised him not to call the police because Ashton at the time was an up-and-coming actor in Hollywood, and they warned him that if he were to be the one to report the murder, his name would be attached to that situation forever. And whether or not he committed the murder, that would be pretty bad for his image. They told him just go about your night, go to the Grammys after party that you were going to take Ashley to, act like she just didn't answer your phone calls or answer the door, and pretend that nothing happened. And then, of course, the next morning, once the police report was actually made about Ashley's murder, then Ashton called the police and said that his fingerprints were on the door. They immediately told him that he was not a suspect and that he would be fine. And then Ashton moved on, his career continued to prosper, and here we are. Now, again, that is all according to Aaron and his apparent sources from the Church of Scientology. I don't know much about the investigation as it took place in 2001 for Ashley's murder, but according to Aaron, it was the inconsistencies in Ashton's story and the fact that the police allegedly knew that Ashton was lying about aspects of his story that planted enough reasonable doubt in the official sequence of events, which prevented the prosecutors from successfully charging and convicting their lead suspect, which was Michael Gargiulo, who would then go on to murder another woman years later. Hence the title of Aaron's video, Ashton Kutcher's Lies Allowed Michael Gargiulo to Kill Again. Other than what Aaron said, I don't really have any evidence to that that I can point to super easily. Like I said, there's no paper trail supporting that story. But here's why I do think that that version is somewhat worth taking seriously. Aaron says in his video that it wouldn't have been possible for Ashton to see the blood on the carpet from the window that Ashton was allegedly looking into. In order to see the blood from the crime scene, Ashton would have had to enter the home. I can't say for sure that that's the case. But I did manage to find some photos from the crime scene and photos of what Ashley's house looked like around that time, along with the floor plan which outlined the crime scene that was shown in the court trial. And with all of that, I'm not going to say it's impossible for Ashton to have seen the blood stains that he allegedly mistook as wine stains, but it is doubtful. Alright, so here's the floor plan of the house and where Ashley's body was found. What the investigation found was that Ashley was attacked when she was coming out of the shower in the bathroom over here. This is, of course, a rendering of where her body was found, right outside the door of the bathroom. There's a couple little, like, specks of stuff on the floor over here, which might be made to indicate some sort of blood stain or something. The furthest back photo that I could find from the crime scene, which I'm not going to show you, but it took place, like, right here is where the camera seemed to be situated. And from that angle, I couldn't really see any blood on the floor. Now, it might have been back farther over here. I don't have photos from that angle, so I don't know. But it appears that Gargiulo left out the front door and maybe left some of the blood stains on the floor in his exit. So this is the front door here. This is where Ashton would have knocked. And when he says that he looked in the window, if he was talking about this window over here, he wouldn't have really seen anything because it just goes into this room where none of the crime scene appears to have taken place. So I'm assuming 
that he's referring to these windows over here. This is kind of a little porch area with glass windows or glass sliding doors going into it. And then out here are some other windows with, at the time, a little sort of fence thing around them. Here's a photo of the house itself from around that time. So in order for Ashton to see the blood on the floor, he would have had to have looked all the way in from right over here, past these windows or sliding glass doors, to see what was happening all the way over here. Now, it was nighttime, and he says that the lights were on, so that would make it easier to see inside of the house, but I don't know that I really believe he would have been able to see blood on the floor or on the wall or anything of that sort from this distance. Moreover, though, if we assume that Gargiulo went out the front door, which I have to assume he did, because the only other options are, like, out a couple different windows, and I don't believe there were any reports of any broken or opened windows at the crime scene, or he would have had to go all the way out around here to this door that led outside. But all of those options, except for this one front door, would make him have to hop a fence on his way off of the property. It seems like the most reasonable, logical thing for him to do was walk out the front door. And to that point, I don't know why, if Ashton did attempt to open the door, which he says he did, and his fingerprints were on the doorknob, why the door wouldn't open. Gargiulo left all the lights on. He also left the security gate open. But he apparently took the time to lock the front door on his way out of the murder scene. Not impossible but unlikely. There are a couple of scenarios that could explain that door being locked, and maybe if there had been photos taken of the house from the angle that Ashton would have been looking at it from outside the window, maybe I'd be convinced that he did see those bloodstains from outside. But for sure, I think that Ashton trying to open the door, succeeding, and walking into the crime scene makes more immediate sense. And if that's true, then we still have to wonder why Ashton didn't call the police right away, which gives some credence to Aaron's story that he called his team, who instructed him to just go about his night as normal. Again, these are all just allegations, but if we entertain the idea that this story is true, it opens up two relevant points about Ashton Kutcher and his connection with Danny Masterson. Number one is that Perhaps Danny's reluctance to speak out against Danny has less to do with his warm feelings toward Danny or his friendship with him and more to do with a possibility that the church or Danny specifically just have something on him. It's possible that Ashton just doesn't want to make Danny or the Church of Scientology his enemy for that reason. They know too much about him and stuff that could be pretty damaging to Ashton's reputation. The second thing we can take from that story is that Ashton Kutcher just fucking sucks. I saw some people commenting on Aaron's video saying, like, if he had called 911 right away, maybe an ambulance could have rescued Ashley. Maybe she wasn't fully dead. From the reports on her injuries, no, she was dead. 
and Ashton really couldn't do anything to save her life. But if he did open the door to a murdered woman, whether it was his girlfriend or not, and didn't instinctively dial 911 and call for police or some sort of assistance, that does say something about his priorities. And even without this story, I do think that there is evidence that Ashton Kutcher prioritizes his career and money over any sense of moral righteousness. I already mentioned it earlier, but Ashton Kutcher is really good at PR. A lot of his public persona plays really well with the general public, and he definitely cares about that. You can even see that in how he defended the memes making fun of his chemistry or lack thereof with Reese Witherspoon during the promo for their Netflix movie. All right, here's the thing. If I put my arm around her and was like all friendly with her, I'd be having an affair with her. <laughs> like that would, the rumor right. would be that I'm having an affair with her. Right. And first of all, no. No, they wouldn't. You guys aren't Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. No one thinks you are hooking up with Reese Witherspoon. And in addition to that, it does kind of read as one of those guys who responded to the whole Me Too movement thing by being like, you can't even touch a woman anymore. Like, no, I think that you specifically are just bad at gauging boundaries and it's not an issue that everybody has. But who cares? The main point is, why put that much effort and thought into making sure strangers don't get the implication that you're having an affair? If you personally know that you're not. What do you just have, PTSD? from the time the public found out you actually were cheating on your former spouse. But I think Ashton is particularly sensitive when it comes to protecting his image as like a good family man who's definitely not cheating on his wife this time. Because his marriage to Mila Kunis is so fucking good for his celebrity. I literally see people making fan edits of the two of them on Twitter and Instagram all the time. And it's kind of understandable why, because they do have a pretty cute story. They worked on that 70s show together, they played boyfriend and girlfriend, Ashton was apparently Mila's first kiss because of that show, she was like 14 at the time, we're gonna ignore that, but then they went separate ways after the series, they still stayed in touch, and then eventually they just started hooking up, and according to them, it started as like a friends with benefits kind of thing, and then they really fell for each other, and isn't that extra special because they both starred in movies with that exact plot? It's like a real-life rom-com. And Ashton knows what Scientology knows. Celebrity is capital. His celebrity, his name, and his public persona are all the things that get Ashton Kutcher money. Ashton isn't really making money as an actor anymore. Obviously, he is getting paid for the roles that he takes, but that isn't his main source of income. Ashton is what is called a venture capitalist, meaning he makes money by investing his money into other people's companies, mostly tech startups, and some pretty successful ones too. He's invested in Shazam, Uber, Acorns, Airbnb, Skype, SoundCloud. But the one he's done maybe the most press for is one that he co-founded with his ex-wife Demi Moore, a nonprofit organization called Thorn. Thorne provides law enforcement with a software called Spotlight, which purportedly fights child sex trafficking, something that we all agree is bad. And how exactly Spotlight works, no one really knows, 
Thorne is not very forthcoming when talking about their technology, but Forbes did some probing and discovered that Spotlight scrapes the internet for advertisements selling sex in some way, then it enters the information it can gather from those ads into a database containing names, numbers, images, and payment details, not just of trafficked individuals and their traffickers, but also consenting sex workers. And because every successful product needs a good story behind it, the story for Thorne is that Demi Moore and Ashton Kutcher one night watched some documentary about sex slavery in Cambodia, and then when they discovered that sex trafficking also sometimes happens in the United States, because of course it does, they felt motivated to do something about it. You might have seen Ashton's moving speech in front of Congress that earned him a lot of support. Now, this is about the time uh, when I start talking about politics that the internet trolls tell me to stick to my day job. Uh, so I'd like to talk about my day job. My day job is as the chairman and the co-founder of Thorn. We build software to fight human trafficking and the sexual exploitation of children. And that's our core mission. My other day job is that of the father of two, a two-month-old and a two-year-old. And it's part of that job that I take very seriously. I believe that it is my effort to defend their right to pursue happiness and to ensure a society and government that defends it as well. Now, when the Department of Homeland Security called us and asked for our help and asked if we had a tool, I had to say no. And it devastated me. It haunted me, because for the next three months, I had to go to sleep every night and think about that little girl that was still being abused, and the fact that if I built the right thing, we could save her. So that's what we did. And now, if I got that phone call from Greg, wherever you're at, <laughs> the answer would be yes. And in many of Ashton's public appearances talking about Thorne, he touts the statistic that there are between 100,000 and 300,000 child sex slaves in the United States today. Issue is, that's not really true. Or at least there's no way to know how true it is. Obviously, we don't have super reliable statistics for human trafficking. It's pretty hard to quantify the amount of victims there are for a crime that only exists as long as it stays undetected. But those numbers had to come from somewhere, right? So the Village Voice looked into this claim and, full disclosure, the Village Voice owns Backpage, which is one of the largest classified advertising sites next to Craigslist, and plenty of those classified ads feature individuals who are selling sex in some way. So the Village Voice definitely has a dog in this fight. They are not an unbiased source of information. But they did do some research, and they discovered that law enforcement records show that there were only about 8,263 arrests across America for child prostitution during the most recent decade. That's about 827 arrests per year. Now, not every trafficker gets caught, so of course, there are more than 827 incidents of child sexual exploitation per year. But the study that Ashton and a whole bunch of outlets are quoting was never actually meant to calculate the amount of current child sex slaves in America. All that study calculated was the amount of children who were seen to be at risk of sexual exploitation. And how did they do that? 
by just adding up the numbers of a bunch of different vulnerable populations of children. That includes children who ran away from home, even though 77% of child runaways will return within one week, which isn't a whole lot of time to start a new life in prostitution. They also added up the number of trans kids in America, or female gang members. My personal favorite of the inclusions is kids who live near the Mexican or Canadian borders and have their own transportation. Now this is not to undermine the issue of sex trafficking in America. Obviously, it is something that exists. And it's something that all normal people agree is horrifying. Of course, vulnerable populations are at a greater risk of becoming victims to crimes like this. But if you care about the hundreds of thousands of children you've deemed to be at risk of this kind of exploitation, perhaps put the millions of dollars that are going into Thorn and Spotlight into programs and resources that improve those vulnerable populations' conditions. Thorn fundamentally, by its own business model, does not reduce the amount of children at risk of sexual exploitation. That's not what Spotlight is designed to do. All it does is put increased surveillance on the sex trade that already exists. And again, it is not only targeting genuine victims of child sex trafficking, it is surveilling and harming consenting adult sex workers without much distinction between those two groups. Police monitoring consenting sex work has pretty much always made it more dangerous, not less. And if you want more information on that, I do recommend Forbes' piece on the matter, Amazon, Ashton Kutcher, and America's Surveillance on the Sex Trade, or in gadgets, sex, lies, and surveillance, something's wrong with the war on sex trafficking. But in 2017, in front of Congress, Ashton claimed that Thorne helped more than 6,000 sex trafficking victims, including 2,000 minors within the last year, that year being 2016. However, the FBI and its Human Trafficking Task Force partners, among state and local law enforcement, only opened around 1,800 investigations into sex or labor trafficking in 2016. So somehow, Thorne managed to rescue more victims of sex trafficking than the amount of trafficking investigations that existed. The next year, Ashton and Thorne got some pretty great press when a whole bunch of outlets ran the claim that Ashton Kutcher helped save 6,000 kids from sex trafficking. That was based off a claim from Thorne's website, which said that their software identified 6,000 child victims of sex trafficking between September 2015 and September 2017, and they had saved 103. So, doesn't really seem like Ashton Kutcher helped save 6,000 kids from sex trafficking. He helped save, at most, 103, but identified even more. It's almost like Ashton Kutcher is full of shit. In his recent Esquire interview, the one that set this whole fucking video off, he said about his acting career in reference to the fact that he's now making way more money on different ventures, now I can just worry about playing roles that I want to play. Implying that all of the acting jobs he has now are some sort of passion project for Ashton. And I'm sorry, but I don't think that that Netflix rom-com with Reese Witherspoon is a passion project. He's not taking these jobs because these are the roles that he loves. It's just brand upkeep. 
Keep playing the rom-com heartthrob. Make cameos in that 90s show. Star in new sitcoms like The Ranch, which features quite a lot of that 70s show cast members. Protect your power couple status with Mila Kunis. Keep good guy Ashton Kutcher in the public consciousness so that when you testify in front of Congress about how much sex trafficking enrages you as a father, and you do your little stupid real men don't buy girls campaign which completely undermines the problems of sex trafficking by trying to tie the issue to your manufactured brand of non-toxic masculinity, you can get public and private funding for your nonprofit that doesn't disclose its process, frequently lies to or misleads the public about its success, and gives police increased tools to surveil consenting sex workers without their knowledge. I don't know why you would do a campaign called Real Men Don't Buy Girls when you don't even give a shit that one of your besties rapes them. Is it because all of those women that he raped were adults at the time? That they're not technically girls to you? They no longer matter? Because not only do I believe that Ashton Kutcher knows that Danny Masterson committed those crimes and doesn't care enough to say anything about it, I think he might have been complicit in the effort to protect Danny from actually experiencing the consequences of his actions. So March of 2017 is when the first reports of the allegations were published. They were published by the Underground Bunker. Ten days later, the Underground Bunker published another report talking about the apparent atmosphere on the set of The Ranch, which starred Danny Masterson and Ashton Kutcher. And the Underground Bunker wrote, Our source tells us that the feeling on the set was pretty tense as our stories were being talked about when Masterson was out of earshot. Our sources said the atmosphere on Friday was not only a little bizarre because of the birthday, it was Danny's birthday, but also because Masterson had dialogue that was typically filled with sexual innuendo, which is par for the ranch. Now, the Underground Bunker posted a few photos from that script, and guess who's mentioned for some reason in the dialogue? Motherfucking Steve Miller! But so that's all in March of 2017. Then in November, the Huffington Post started to get on the story. And the author of one of their articles said that Netflix was aware of the allegations against Danny, but had made no decisions about whether or not to fire him. Then after the Huffington Post started to publish articles about Danny Masterson, a former production assistant on the show who worked for about three seasons named Nick Olszewski said he reached out to his former boss, Melanie Patterson, wife of James Patterson, who was the executive producer on the ranch and told her that he had information relative to Danny Masterson's case. Olszewski said that he always liked Danny and he was really friendly to him while he worked there, but there were a few things that he witnessed that in hindsight he thought might have kind of supported the allegations against him. So he said at one point he heard Danny going external on someone on the phone in his dressing room after rehearsal when he thought everyone else was gone. He said, I was going through the halls and stopped to listen because he was so angry, speaking so violently. It was out of character, or so I thought at the time. He also said that there was one day that Danny was talking with Alicia Cuthbert, one of the actresses on the show, and Danny was giving Alicia and her friends a crash course in how to avoid getting roofied. Olszewski said, I thought it was strange how he knew so much about it. He also said that Danny once confided in him that he used to get so drunk he would wake up in the park and have no idea what happened the night before, and that he went through a phase like that. That one to me is a little bit less compelling as far as Danny's behavior indicating that he might have raped people, you know? I mean, people get drunk and forget where they are all the time, and 
often don't assault people while they do it. But I guess it does indicate that Danny had a bit of a wilder side than what he was portraying currently. Anyway, Olszewski said that after he read stories about Danny in the press, he recalled how Danny made his girlfriend so uncomfortable with his disregard for her personal space. He said he always kissed her on the cheek and touched her lower back even though they had only met a handful of times. So after reading the Huffington Post articles, Olszewski, as a normal reaction that a decent person would have, decided that he wanted to reach out to Melanie Patterson and tell her about the things that he witnessed that might corroborate the alleged victim's depiction of Danny as a little different from the person that he publicly portrays himself as. So he reached out to Patterson on November 3rd and sent her an email saying that he had information relative to Danny's case, and of course he wanted to volunteer information that would be kind of damning to Danny and support the women who were coming forward with allegations of rape and abuse, but that's not how Patterson seemed to take the email. Because right after that, Olszewski said that he got a text from Danny, which the underground bunker has posted a screenshot of, which said, Yo, my bro, just finished run through. Mel told me earlier you hit her up with info to help me with this bullshit I'm dealing with. What you got? Patterson then emailed Olszewski and said that someone else was going to be contacting him and said, Our guy who's gathering information is going to reach out with you. His name is Andrew. Then that same day, Olszewski got a text from a man named Andrew. Olszewski responded to him and said, What is your last name and job title? I would only discuss this in person with a third party present. Andrew responded, Discuss what? Olszewski, re, Masterson. Anderson said, Not following. Do you have info to help Masterson? So Olszewski looked up the phone number and discovered that Andrew, the person that Melanie Patterson referred to as our guy who was gathering information about Danny, was actually Andrew Brettler, an attorney who worked for Marty Singer, the entertainment lawyer who had been representing Danny Masterson. So I don't know what sort of, if any, investigation Netflix was running in regards to the allegations against Danny, Maybe they had no idea that Andrew Brettler was being referred to as our guy by Melanie Patterson, but it's definitely more than a little sus that one of the producers on the ranch was referring to Danny's own legal team as their guys who was gathering information about Danny's case. They were not looking for impartial information. They were not looking for anything that could be damaging to Danny. They were looking to help Danny. Which makes sense, because Danny was also a producer on the ranch. As was Ashton Kutcher. I don't know anything about Ashton's particular involvement in this entire ordeal, but it definitely seems like the people who were working behind the scenes at the ranch were rallying around Danny to support him, and actively trying to get information that could help him rather than hurt him, or reveal the actual truth of what had happened. At the very least, Ashton definitely knew what was going on and was complicit in it. He didn't do anything to stop it that we know of, and he's still currently saying that he doesn't know whether or not Danny is guilty. He does, because anyone who knows anything about these allegations knows that Danny is guilty, because that's what all the fucking evidence supports. But they don't want that evidence. They want the information that's going to help Danny. And in fact, Despite Esquire's claim that Danny was let go from the Netflix show immediately after the allegations became public, he actually wasn't let go until December 
after one of the accusers confronted a Netflix CEO at a soccer game and asked, why haven't you fired Danny? To which the executive responded, because we don't believe the allegations. That executive did not know that they were talking to one of the accusers at that time, and Netflix, of course, had to fire that executive after that story became public, and shortly after that, they fired Danny as well. And of course, they only did that because of the bad press they were getting for keeping Danny on the show, which they had been doing for months after the allegations became public. And all of this kind of begs the question, why? Why are so many people willing to go to bat for this B-list actor that people really only know from one memorable project? A sitcom from the 2000s that has failed to make a viable franchise for itself on three separate occasions now. I mean, I know season two for that 90s show has been greenlit, but no one really likes the series. And Danny still doesn't even get to be a part of that legacy. This is a lot of trouble to go to for the guy who played the secondary friend in one of the worst Jim Carrey movies. So I'm gonna conclude this video with a point that I hope can bring the rest of us at least a little bit of solace. Because I don't know what's gonna happen with the court trials. It's terrifying that so much of the jury wanted to find Danny not guilty months ago, and who knows what's gonna happen with the retrial. I think a decent section of my audience is well aware that justice in the court system depends largely on the evidence that's deemed admissible, and that depends largely on the decisions and the biases of judges and courts themselves. And verdicts depend largely on the performances of each respective side within the court. Danny's current legal representation is wildly successful. His attorney, Marty Singer, has defended many high-profile cases that involved some accusation of sexual assault or abuse, including people like Prince Andrew, Bill Cosby, Charlie Sheen, Ricky Martin. So. Yeah, Danny might be found not guilty in the criminal trial, and I don't really know what's going to happen with the civil suit either. The fact that Scientology is legally considered a religion means that they do have some extra protections under the First Amendment. They have historically justified their abuse and harassment of people as just another part of their religious practices. So from a legal standpoint, there are plenty of ways that the church can get away with this. But at least in the criminal trial, I almost think it would be better for everyone involved, except for, I guess, Danny himself, for Danny to just be deemed guilty. Because a not guilty verdict would provoke a larger conversation in the culture. There isn't a huge amount of attention around this case currently, but there is a bit. Especially from two very passionate groups of people. One being victims of sexual or domestic abuse, and the other being victims of cults or institutionalized abuse. Both of those groups see this case as representative for much larger problems. And neither really wants to see Danny Masterson or the Church of Scientology get away with this shit like so many other abusers have gotten away with similar crimes in the past. A guilty verdict at least puts this specific case to bed. You will piss off far fewer members of the general public by sending Danny Masterson to prison than you will by not doing that. Because Danny is just not that fucking famous. 
or likable. There isn't a sizable amount of people rooting for him. There is just, at best, a sizable amount of people who don't realize what he's accused of. But even a good portion of those people know he's been accused of something. It's a part of the zeitgeist in a large enough way that Danny's reputation is effectively tarnished. And a not guilty verdict just isn't gonna fix that. Like, even look at the Depp v. Heard trial, which ended in a settlement, but much of the general public sees that trial as a win for Johnny in a legal sense. The jury, for the most part, sided with him. And yet, research has shown that Johnny Depp is actually less popular and less people like him after the trial than before. Because by bringing this case to a public forum, he brought attention to a lot of stuff that he probably shouldn't have brought attention to for his own reputation's sake. Similarly, if Danny tries to make a total return to the entertainment industry, that's gonna prompt a lot of people who aren't currently aware of the details of what he's accused of to start looking into it. And looking into it makes a lot of people, more than just Danny Masterson, look really, really bad including Ashton Kutcher, who's actually being kind of dumb if he thinks that he can totally just resume his public friendship with Danny just because he gets a not guilty verdict. The best thing for everybody else to do is to just let Danny take the fall for this and get the fuck away from his sinking ship, which a whole lot of people seem to not be willing to do. And in a way, that's kind of awesome, because it's such a bad idea for so many of these people from a long-term standpoint. Danny is at a point where any publicity is bad publicity. The only reason that people like Ashton Kutcher are getting away with not condemning Danny is because so much of the public isn't aware of what he did. But should Danny try to return to people's TV screens, way more people are gonna suddenly be interested in figuring out what it is Danny's been accused of. And this is all just kind of part of the dumb moves that the Church of Scientology has been making for years. Their fair game tactics have worked in silencing victims in the short term, because it freaked a whole bunch of people out and intimidated them into submission, but now, a whole bunch of the victims of these fair game tactics are aware of one another, and they're willing to stand together to fight Scientology on a public platform because the church has given them nothing else to lose. And sure, it's been super helpful for the Church of Scientology to have really high-profile public figures within their membership, like Tom Cruise or John Travolta, because those people give the church some useful publicity. But, in courting all those celebrities, they also made the circumstances that have led to things like Leah Remini and the aftermath. And there are now a whole bunch of former Scientologists like Leah Remini and Aaron Smith-Levin and Mike Rinder, and to a lesser extent Leah Marie Presley, who have been willing to speak out against the church's control. And there's always the possibility, even if I don't know that it's all that likely, that people like Laura Prepon and Jason Lee will join people like Leah Remini. The Church of Scientology has set themselves up to have an army of people who are really pissed off at them and have a lot of damning information. And it definitely doesn't help their cause that so much of their membership already has a public platform. Over the last few years, there have been a lot of news stories that don't make me super optimistic about the future of our society. 
But one thing that I think a lot of us have to look forward to is that I do think the Church of Scientology will fully collapse within my lifetime, and the fallout from that is going to be pretty massive, which will be super fun to watch, and sobering and sad in some ways, but also fun. And I'll bet that this Danny Masterson saga is going to play a pretty significant part in all of that. No matter how long it takes or how these court cases turn out, this is still just another straw on the proverbial camel's back, which will eventually be broken. So in conclusion, fuck Danny Masterson, fuck the Church of Scientology, fuck Ashton Kutcher, fuck Laura Prepon for now, though I'll give her a minute to think about it, fuck Esquire, I guess, and long live Leah Remini, and for no particular reason, Tover Grace. Okay, bye.